often ask questions, one of which surrounded his identity. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, while in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples on one occasion, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? On another occasion, Jesus asked this question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Today I want to suggest that we believe in Jesus. And there are some rock-solid reasons why we believe in Jesus. In John chapter 6, Peter affirmed the fact that they had come to believe and to know that Jesus was everything he said he was, and that is that he was the Son of God. So let's look at John chapter 6. I want to begin by suggesting that first and foremost there is what I would call an interrogation. And then secondly, there is a declaration. Let's think first about this interrogation. Now, in order to really understand the latter part of John chapter 6, you've got to go back and look at the context, the background. John begins chapter 6 by informing us that Jesus performed a great miracle. He took five barley loaves and two small fish and fed a multitude of some 5,000 people. As a result of that, many of the multitudes, many people in the multitude, began to follow him. And so, down in verse 26, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. It would seem to me that they were following him because of what they could get out of him. And so in verse 27, he said, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but he said, For the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they asked the question, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So in verse 30, they ask a question. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Well, he just performed a great sign. And so they ask the question, what work will you do? And then they reminded Jesus about their fathers in the wilderness who ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus points out, look, it wasn't Moses that gave you this manna from heaven, but rather it was God in heaven. And so in verse 33, Jesus said, the bread of God who is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said, Lord, give us this bread always. And so in verse 35, listen to what Jesus now says. I am the bread of life. When Jesus said that, that was a very strong statement. And what you find is the people had difficulty accepting that great truth. So he said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In verse 38 he said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then dropping down again in verse 47, 
Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. He said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to quarrel and debate. And they asked the question, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now you can just imagine how that was received. So the Bible says down in verse 60, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard or difficult saying. Who can understand it? And then in verse 66, John says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So by way of context, what Jesus said about himself, that he was the bread of life, that was a very difficult thing for them to comprehend, to accept. So as a result of that, many of those folks walked away. Now, as we think about the crisis, because John says many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So we're introduced to a question posed by the Savior. Listen to what Jesus asked in verse 67. And Jesus is asking the 12, do you also want to go away? I want you to think for a minute about what Jesus is asking. Multitudes have just walked away. And the Lord didn't say, now wait a minute. Come back and let's readdress this situation. Jesus didn't compromise the message. He didn't make any concessions. He simply asked the disciples, you also want to go away? The question that the Lord asked, it was a very personal question. He directed it to the twelve. Not only was it a personal question, it was a very pointed question. I mean, they had seen the multitudes walk away. They had heard what he had been teaching. They had seen the great miracles that he had performed. So he simply wants to know, are you willing to walk away as well? It was a personal question. It was a pointed question. It was a profound question. Because ultimately, the implications are this. If you walk away, you're walking away from everything. And then it was a provocative question. In other words, it evoked a response, didn't it? So you think about the question that was posed by the Savior, but then note, if you would, the question posed by Simon. Peter asked, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now think about that for a minute. We talk about Peter, and sometimes Peter was quick to speak. Many times Peter would speak before thinking. But he asked the question here, and again, it's a good question, I think. Lord, to whom shall we go? I mean, think about that. You're following the Lord Jesus Christ. You've seen what he's done time and again. You've heard him speak. 
Multitudes of people are walking away. The Lord wants to know, okay, are you going to leave as well? Leave to what? The world? Are we going to go back to the world? You know, there are people sometimes that sadly embrace the Lord. They choose to live for Him on a daily basis, and then for whatever reason, the world, through its continual tugging and pulling, reclaims them. You know, John said, we're not to love the world, nor the things which are in the world. He said, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He said, they're not of the Father, but are of the world. Look, the world makes overtures every single day, doesn't it? And the world says, what I have, you need. And sometimes those of us who belong to the body of Christ as a result of those constant, continual overtures, relinquish our relationship to the Lord. We go back to the world. Peter talks about those who at one time had escaped the corruptions, the pollutions that are in the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But he said they are again entangled therein and overcome. What happens? They go back to the world. James a very practical book in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, probably one of the most practical books in the New Testament. And James talks about the, the inherent dangers of the world. In chapter 1, he admonishes Christians of every age to keep themselves unspotted from the world. In chapter 4, verse 4, he said, You adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Why? Because the world offers us everything but delivers nothing. So, okay, Peter, you've, you've raised a great question. To whom shall we go? Are we going to go back to the world? No. Well, what about, what about work? You know, there are some people that are workaholics. I think it's great to love your profession, to enjoy what you do. And some people, they love their profession. They love what they do. Every day is a new challenge. But sometimes people get so caught up and consumed with work, they forget about what's really important in life. They forget about that spiritual dimension of life. You remember in Luke chapter 12 when Jesus told the parable of the rich farmer? And the Bible says business was booming. So his take was, you know what, I'm going to pull down my barns and build greater ones. Nothing wrong with expanding our business. Nothing wrong with pursuing corporate business on a daily basis. But look, we can get so lost in work, we forget about the Lord. And some people, they have dedicated themselves to working day in, day out, and there's no semblance of a spiritual life. Add to that, Wealth. Peter asked the question, Lord, to whom shall we go? Are we going to go to the world? No. What about work? Work's important, yes. Well, what about wealth? I mean, can't we enjoy our financial successes in life? Again, the answer is yes. But are there not people in our world today that have come to the conclusion there's this void or vacuum in life 
And in order to somehow fill that void, wealth is the answer. A lot of people think that, don't they? I mean, think about the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12. Jesus prefaced the parable by saying, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. In other words, what you have doesn't define you. In our world today, people want to say, look at me and look what I have. And look at how much I've accumulated in life. Look, wealth comes from God and we're grateful for it. James said every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above. But wealth without God is meaningless and so the rich farmer business is booming he spent a lot of time cultivating this business and growing his business the byproduct wealth so he said alright here's my attitude he said once I've built greater barns he said I'll enjoy the fruit of my bounty Eat, drink, and be merry. That's really a summation of a lot of people in life, isn't it? There are so many people in our world today. They're trying to fill, to fill that void or vacuum in life with the world, with their work or occupation, with wealth. And then what about worldly, what about worldly philosophy? Are there not some people that are looking to different philosophies for the answer to life, what life's all about? Do you remember in Acts chapter 17 when the apostle Paul went into the city of Athens? Luke said in verse 16 that his spirit, his inward man was stirred within him because the whole city was given over to idolatry. So Paul goes into the marketplace and begins to teach those people about the resurrection of Jesus. And the Bible speaks of those Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans, they believed that life was all about pleasure. Maximizing pleasure to the minimization of pain. The, Stoic, the Stoics of that day, they had the idea that life was governed by fate. So whatever, whatever would come their way, we'll just take it. And Luke says that those Athenians, they spent their time in nothing else but either to hear or to tell some new thing. Now, there are people in our world today, they're looking for answers. What's, what's life all about? Where did I come from? What am I doing here? I mean, after all, why am I here? And then that age-old question, where are we headed? So, Jesus asked a great question. Do you also want to go away? Peter responds to that question with a tremendous question as well. Lord, to whom shall we go? Now let's think for a minute about the declaration. And I want you to think about what Peter is going to say here because first and foremost, from my vantage point, I see an examination. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? He said, you have the words of life eternal. Also, we have come, listen to him, we have come to believe and know that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Could I ask you a question? 
How did they come to believe and know that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one of whom the prophets of old had foretold? How did they come to know that? How did they come to the conclusion that Jesus is everything he said that he is? He's the Son of God. Let me give you some reasons, first and foremost. What about the testimony of the Son's Father? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 17? Peter, James, and John accompany Jesus up into the mountain. And the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured before them. And as he was transfigured, Matthew said, a voice comes forth from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he said, hear him. And Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 1, in 1 Peter chapter, or rather in 2 Peter chapter 1, he would affirm that we were with him on the mount and we heard that voice. They heard the voice of the Father. When God acknowledged, this is my son. And then I think about Jesus in John chapter 5. Jesus said, the father himself who has sent me has testified of me. Think about that. The apostles, the apostles could say, we have the testimony of God the father. But then there's another, I think, reason why they came to believe and know that Jesus was indeed the Christ, and that is the testimony of Scripture. In John chapter 5, Jesus said to the Jews of his day, you search the Scriptures. For in them, he said, you think you have eternal life. And he said in verse 40, these are they which testify of me. Jesus here is simply affirming the fact that all of those Old Testament prophecies, over 300 prophecies, penned about the coming of the Son of God, were true. In other words, they pointed in His direction, didn't they? Beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God announced the promised seed, the Son who would come, He would ultimately come through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, David, and so Jesus is telling those Jews of his day, look, everything that the prophets of old penned about me are true. In the latter part of that chapter, he said to the Jews of his day, think not that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses in whom you trust. He said, if you believe Moses, and they thought a lot about Moses, Moses had written the Pentateuch. Moses was the great leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel. They looked to him as a man of great honor. And he said, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. Why? Because he wrote about me. He said, if you do not believe his writings, he asked this question, how will you believe my words? Now think about that. The scriptures affirmed Jesus to be the Son of God. Now there's a third reason why they came to believe 
Jesus, the Son of God. The testimony of the Son. What about Jesus? Shouldn't we listen to what he has to say? Think for a minute about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Born of the Virgin Mary. He has an earthly mother and a heavenly father. He is the Word who has become flesh. As John said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he said, we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here is Jesus. And as he burst on the scene and begins his ministry at the age of 30, and cultivates a following, there are two ways Jesus impressed upon the people of his day, including the apostles, that he was exactly who he claimed to be. First, by his words, his message, what he said. Listen again to what Peter asked. Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Do you not think that there was something special about what Jesus was saying? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus Begins preaching, begins preaching to the multitude. Typically we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus over and over again in Matthew chapter 5 will say, You have heard it said by them of old time. But then inserting divine authority, he would say, But I say unto you, over and over again, Jesus would insert his divine authority. Matthew says in chapter 7, when he ended these sayings, the people on that occasion were astonished. Why? Because he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. Do you remember in John chapter 7, verse 46, when it was said of Jesus, no man ever spoke like this man. Think about that. The incomparable words of Jesus, the Son of God. Peter was right when he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So they have had the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus and to listen to him time and again. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were caught on the Sanhedrin carpet, they had healed a man at the gate of the temple, as recorded by Luke in chapter 3. So, the Sanhedrin council, they want to know by what name, by what authority, what power have you done this great miracle? Well, they let, they let them know that it was by Jesus, by his power. And the Bible tells us that those men took knowledge. They recognized Peter and John were uneducated and untrained men. But Luke says... They took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. They had heard someone very special. Why do we believe in Jesus? We believe in Jesus because of the testimony of the Son's Father, and we can read about it in Scripture. We believe in Jesus because of the testimony of Scripture. We believe in Jesus because of the testimony of the Son. What He said. It either carries weight or it doesn't. It's either authoritative or it's not. 
And then add to that. Their belief and knowledge of Jesus was based or rooted not only in his words, his message, but in his works or his miracles. There are seven miracles recorded in the book of John, beginning in John chapter 2, that marriage feast at Cana of Galilee. In chapter 4, we read about a nobleman whose child was healed by Jesus. In chapter 5, a man who was paralyzed was healed by Jesus. In chapter 6, Jesus is walking on the water. So the disciples, the apostles, they have seen firsthand Jesus at work, haven't they? In John chapter 5, verse 36, here's what Jesus said. He said, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Think about that. Jesus is saying that the miracles that he performed gave credibility to his authenticity. In other words, that he was exactly who he claimed to be. Why? Because the miracles confirmed the word. So Jesus is out here performing miracles. And those miracles or signs are an affirmation that this is someone very special. Now you remember in John chapter 20 in verse 30, John would write after the fact and he would say, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Seven were recorded. But he said, these are written, why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So why do we believe in Jesus? We believe in Jesus because of his word, because of his message, and because of his works or his miracles. I want you to think about something. The disciples of Jesus, they examined him. Jesus didn't say, you just accept me blindly without any kind of testimony. No, Jesus was on display for them and the world to see. And just as they examined the Lord, what we have to do is examine him, don't we? We have to sift through the evidence We've got to go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can look back at the Old Testament, think about all those prophecies that were written, and ask the question, okay, were they fulfilled? And then we look at the book of Acts and think about the birth of the church, the infancy of the church, and the rapid growth of that great spiritual institution. And then as you look at all of, those old, all of the New Testament books that were penned, Affirming that Jesus will one day come again. We've got to ask the question. Do we believe it? I mean, we've examined the evidence. Now the question is, do we believe it? There was an examination on their part, but there was secondly, adoration on their part. Listen to what it said. Peter said, we've come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you think the disciples, do you think they adored him? Yes, they did. Were they willing to serve him, come what may? Yes, they were. You see, they were, they were able to draw the necessary conclusion that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. So today I ask you, what do you think about Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? 
Did you know that belief is fundamental to everything? Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, he said, you'll die in your sins. And he said, if you die in your sins, where I am, there you cannot come. Now, as we close, Jesus never wrote a book, never penned a song, never made a movie, never wrote a script for a movie, never, never really did a lot in terms of worldly acclaim. A lot of books have been written about him. A lot of movies have portrayed his life and death. A lot of songs have been written. Why? Because Jesus is the most remarkable person to have ever lived. And what we think about him, what we believe about him, will ultimately impact where we spend eternity. So what I want you to do today is to remember that the Father sent Jesus for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, why not come to Jesus? I know you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You wouldn't be here. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God and you would repent of your sins and confess His name, be immersed in a watery grave of baptism. You can rise to walk in newness of life. All your sins will be washed away, Acts 2.38. God will put you in the church, Acts 2.47. And the promise is if you'll be faithful until death, God will crown you with the Stephanos. If you're here today and maybe you're not faithful and you want us to pray with you and for you with the understanding that God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1.9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?